Greetings program. Hello and welcome to Toronto Logically Speaking, a movie by minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. I'm your host Duncan Shields and with me today is my delightful, insightful and caring co-host Alan Sanders from The Wilder Ride. Welcome Alan. Thanks Duncan. Appreciate it. This has been so much fun to revisit. There's so certain movies I don't know how you feel about this, but there are certain movies that in your childhood you just have such great memories and then you go to show them to, let's say, maybe your kids or you go back and revisit and you go, oh, that's not what I remember it being. This is not one of those movies. <laughs> this is a fantastic movie. To me, still holds up the set design, the art direction, everything about it. It's so much fun to still watch even today. Like design is something that can get past like cinematic limitations of the era. Like I think if you see Tron now, it doesn't seem dated or that's so eighties. Like the only parts that sort of are like that are the real world parts because everybody's wearing their eighties fashions. But once right. you're inside the computer, it's, it's timeless because the, the, the design work of Sid Mead and Mobius are so strongly represented there that it's still, relevant and still really still really good that's was because that's the thing that they've gotten wrong in some of the attempts at sequels and games is they've not quite nailed that look right but with uh, with tron legacy i think they did a 10 out of 10 i think they nailed it in, in in tron legacy but that's always been the challenge of like how to how to recreate this timeless classic beautiful look that they managed to do so well in the first uh, the first time in 1982 and i'm sure depending on uh you know by the time you make it to the end of this project it'd be interesting to see what you decide to add are you going to do a tron video game segment are you going to talk about the first person shooter game that really was sort of the bridge from tron one to what disney then calls the second iteration with legacy and whether or not you even liked tron legacy because i think art direction design music that sequel is so good for those elements. It just, in my mind, fails because the story just didn't hold like it needed to. Yeah, this it's been interesting doing a deep dive on this one because I find that comparisons to Legacy are inevitable. And for me, going into this project, Legacy was a two out of three. I thought they nailed the music and they nailed the visuals, which is like no small feat, which is incredible, which mm-hmm. is basically saves the entire film but yeah where it falls apart is the script where we get dropped into this complicated end game and there's five story credits on that movie so i think there was five people with five great ideas and they all got jammed together and were tried to force to work together and it it feels like that you know that's what it feels like we're like oh i'm watching this person's movie now i'm watching this person's movie now i'm watching this person's movie like it didn't come together to me in a in a beautiful cohesive whole but doing a deep dive on this movie i'm like well the story here is pretty iffy too so i'm a lot easier on a legacy now i'll be really interesting to see legacy after this project is finished and see where my uh where my impression is after that like as far as i'm concerned the more tron the better i i think if i was going to do a deep dive on another property that was related to tron it would be the disney cartoon that lasted a season that was uh, out there like five years ago. I think it was called Tron Uprising with Elijah Wood and a bunch of people. And Clue was in the background and it was all one of his lieutenants that was in charge and Bruce Boxleitner's in it. But there was just this wonderful exploration of the world there. Like they ran a garage for all the different vehicles for one for one. That thing. would be and, something to check out. I never saw the animated series. I know it's only, I think you said just one season, but I never saw any episodes of it whatsoever. Yeah, I think that the bad guy is very cookie cutter in a Disney villain kind of way. And Elijah Wood, I think, might have been miscast as the lead because he's kind of not, he doesn't quite fit into the world in my eyes for some other people disagree. But the supporting cast and the deep dive they do on other details of what it's like to be in that world were just fantastic. And I'm very sorry that it didn't get a a second season or a longer continuation. Tron to me is this property that keeps trying to, trying to get off the ground. And it's this deep, beautiful jewel inside the people that love it that keeps 
fueling another kick at the can and you get tron legacy and then it's like fantastic here comes tron 3 and then tomorrowland tanks and then they have to take a whole bunch of projects that were given the green light off the table tron 3 is one of them now it's in limbo but i have no doubt that there'll be another another tron movie or another tron i almost feel like you need to go you know go next door you've you you acquired marvel studios not that long ago grab a bunch of their writers and say okay you guys got it you figured it out Come on over here, help us bang out script for for Tron 3. Gosh, what a good idea. I think that would be fantastic. Cuz the concept because... I heard, the concept I heard for Tron 3 would be Cora learning what it means to be human in the real world. And to me that is like I don't know if I'm super down with her experiencing rain for the first time or learning what kissing is, you know, or all that kind of stuff. I think that would Maybe be beautiful in in drips, but I want to be back in that in that in that world. I don't want to see like I know what this world is like. I don't want to right. see someone else learning what this world is like. I want to learn more about what's inside the computer. Yeah, and I think the the environment is certainly rich for additional myth building and world building within the Tron world. I think you're absolutely right. It, it may it may be interesting to explore that maybe in a segment of the film and then realize. She can take those experiences back to maybe inside the computer world. Okay, fine. But to live the entire story outside, I'm kind of with you. It doesn't, I mean, in the, in the right hands, sure, we'll, I'll give anything a shot. But it, it, sure. I'm not, <laughs> I don't feel it right now. Yeah, the way it was described to me, I wasn't feeling it. But I like what you're saying. Like she could feel rain on the outside and then go back into the computer and try to recreate rain and actually have a. A, a rain cloud that she's created digitally and, well, have and other even programs. not even not nature or something, but maybe the experience of how you make actual connections with people and empathy or something, some, some, you know, you know, those typical things where you try to figure out some life lesson that you just disguise one way and then you reveal later in the movie, like, Oh, yeah. it works. But something like that might, you know, transcend to an audience. Yeah. Cause for me, the user's main power is that they, have no rules, but also they bring, you know, this, this intangible thing called hope that programs don't have and they don't know about, but that's right. what lets you transcend your programming. And that's to me what Flynn brings to the table is he's got a unique set of superpowers in this movie as a user, but he also brings, you, you can do it. <laughs> you know, all these programs going, well, you can't possibly stand up against the MCP. And he's like, well, yeah, you can though. And they're like, whoa really can mm -hmm. i like i think that's the power of the user and uh i like that that gets explored in, in legacy and i get it gets explored here a lot too yeah and i was gonna say if we if we want to bring this even full circle back to where we are today i love the fact that we will get that in this first tron movie that there are yeah. still certain rules that when you know flynn gets pulled into the world later spoiler alert <laughs> that <laughs> There are certain rules, like he could be hurt in this world. He feels pain. He There is a construct. He's got sort of limitations. But you can also, if you know how the world works, sort of like the Matrix idea, once you know where the rules are, you know where you can bend them. Yeah. And I love that. I've always loved that when he finally realizes, oh, wait, in the outside world, I'm like this ace programmer. I know how to manipulate the code to get it to do what I want. So why couldn't I just do the same thing here? I think that's fantastic. It's such a cool, again, concept of the duality of the powers you have as a user kind of help you in this world now because you are technically creating that program within the computer world anyway. So, you know, we talked in the very first uh, minute we had together in minute seven that I like the parallels, that they look kind of the same. They have the same mannerisms because a piece of you is there. Well, I think that just flows naturally here if you have power on the outside to manipulate programs and let's face it even your operating environment your operating systems a program then of course you should be able to manipulate something within that world even if you're inside it yourself yeah for sure no, i very much uh, i very much agree with that and I, I like what it says about almost the nature of existence itself like i think the insinuation of tron to some extent with some of the crossfades that they have from the grid to the city is what if this world is a program and who are our users and mm -hmm. what can what can you do 
And, you know, it's very, I think there's a very similar message to the Matrix there, but there's also a lot of Wizard of Oz. There's a lot of classic, you know, going to another place and learning something, but there's also a transcend who you are. It's, it's such a futuristic movie with such a classic, beautiful moral. I just can't get enough of this movie. I love it. I, I, you think when you do a movie by minute, you wonder if it's going to ruin the movie for you. You wonder if taking it apart section by section is going to demystify it or somehow cheapen it. And that has not happened yet. And I've been doing extremely deep research on it. And it's my, my love of it is only intensifying. So hopefully that's the same for most people that do one of these podcasts. That's exactly what we've discovered. Uh, that was Walt's biggest worry, my co-host with The Wilder Ride. He loves Young Frankenstein. And he knows I will notice things. I'll notice if there's a continuity error. I'll, and I do a lot of that deep research. When we got done, not only did he love it more, I loved it more. I, I I wasn't as big a fan as he was of that movie. And sort of the reverse, I was a huge fan of Blazing Saddles, and he was a fan of it, but Young Frankenstein was his favorite. So now we've each kind of done our favorites, and I did not like, I mean, I, I did not, I did not find myself liking Blazing Saddles less. If anything, I'm like, this movie is so culturally important still today, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's so much happening in that movie beyond the, the comedy. You know, it's so much about commentary and social I mean, what's going on in the world and how to treat people and, and our stereotypes and how our stereotypes are almost always wrong, you know? And uh, I think with Tron, kind of what you were saying, I always thought of it as you don't have to feel like you're on, like uh, there, there, some, some early video games, that were, you know, some of the early problems was, yeah, you can kind of move around a little bit, but it's almost like you're on the rails of a roller coaster. You're kind of being forced to follow the same path every time through the story. And then they started doing these open world stories where now, oh, you're free to go anywhere. I almost feel like Tron is saying, it's so easy to get caught in the rut of the program of everyday life. But if you were to sit back for a second and go, wait a minute, I actually do have control here. I can change what I'm doing. If I don't like where my life's going, if I don't like what's happening around me, I, I actually have the power to change if I so wield it. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I totally agree. All right, now let's get to the minute proper here. In this minute, we see the end of Clue, tail end of Clue, as he gets oh, further and further. Bye. See you, Clue. Bye-bye. Oh, see ya. Slowly, painfully, pass by pass. And uh, his insides are overlaid with similar points of light on a downtown core at night from the air. And MCP says the classic line, Get me Dillinger. I love that line. It, it, yeah. It, the, 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 the fact that it's like he's in charge. Not that he's the program. He's like, I'm ordering somebody to get me my user now. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, an interesting thing because they go into it a bit more. Some in the, in the upcoming scenes, we see the sort of power flip between the MCP and, and Sark in the novel, they go into it a bit more that he gets, he's at a trade show and he gets summoned. He gets a phone call from the MCP saying you, you come home right now and he has to go. And he's miffed about that walking in. He's like, Whoa, 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 wait a second, buddy. You don't call me and tell me to come home. Mm -hmm. You understand? That's not what you do. MCP. I tell you to do stuff. So the, the 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 paradigm shift of who's in control that power imbalance is what we're seeing like right now because he's saying get me Dillinger and it's the first time that he's been like I don't care where he is get him here and beckons him and then Dillinger has to actually come running which is you know I think a bit of a, a bit of a hard pill for him to swallow kind of like Frankenstein's monster in a way you like you know you do what I tell you no sorry what <laughs> you know? right well let me ask this. Who is he saying this to? Is, does he have a secretary? Does he have, you know, is there, is there an assistant? Does he have an intern working for him? I mean, who's he yelling, get me Dellinger? That's a wonderful question. I imagined, I always imagined it was the guard and that the guard has rudimentary phone call powers or something or whatever. Like there's a communication person that can go Hi, over. Hi, I'm the emergency pager beep 911. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pager. How are you? <laughs> Oh, you want somebody to call right quick? You just put in nine one one, and I know to stop what I'm doing and call. <laughs> yeah. 
I like that. Oh my gosh, there's people that are going to listen to this that go, "What the hell are you talking about, pagers?" What is a pager? <laughs> there's been so much media that's come and gone over the last fifty to sixty years that it's a wonder that, like, it's almost like a, a sieve that everything has to get that great movie that you liked has to have been made on VHS has to have been made on beta has to have been made on laserdisc has to have been made on DVD has to have been made on blu-ray and has to have been digitized now so that you can stream it in high quality like what's you know what didn't make it you know that 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 obscure movie that you liked there's a movie i like called cold-blooded starring jason priestley where he's a hitman for the mob and it's a black comedy and uh, that never made it past the VCR stage. It's still oh. only available as VHS. There's an internet movement to try to make it into a DVD or a Blu-ray, but it's pretty much gone forever at this point. So, yeah, you wonder with like pagers and computers and there was a thing where there's a, well, okay, no, that's way too much of a digression. Well, there was a, there was a, <laughs> a, a Wait a second. It's like it's almost like you got the Wilder ride effect. <laughs> <laughs> the Wilder ride effect. They, well, there's a satellite that we sent to the sun in 19, I want to say 78, and it was on such a long orbit that it came back past us. I think four years ago, five years ago, and we couldn't talk to it. If we had the capability, we could have reprogrammed it to tell it to go back and get more data, or go somewhere else and do some more stuff. But we did none of the 1975 technology was around anymore, so wow. we just kind of had to watch it go past because we didn't have, I don't know, vacuum tubes and Morse code or whatever it was we were using in 1975 to uh, to communicate to it. I almost feel like you know you know how uh, you you graph uh, a regular sort of progressive cur- uh, like it, like if it's a one to one ratio, if you were to graph it, it's sort of a diagonal line. Like for every year of advancement, you may you may gain another notch, and so it's a it's a nice even progression. But I think in the last twenty years, at least maybe even longer, but we've been in a geometric curve where yeah. it may have been a one to one ratio one year, then it's like one to two, now it's one to four, now it's one to eight. You know, it's yeah. and I at some point are we going to plateau, or are we just going to is technology going to outpace us so far, we won't even realize the ramifications of what we've unleashed until it's too late. Well, I think it was, there was, I forget which philosopher said it, but someone said the main problem of humanity right now is that we have primitive biology, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah. And I'm thinking like that sentence always stuck with me because I'm like, yeah, that sums it up a lot because we are so technologically advanced right now but we're still banging rocks together you know mentally i think we're still we're still so rooted in our in our bodies and our primitive biology and our yeah the whole notion of like countries or banks or even churches or anything like that all these institutions we hold hold dear are uh they're they're rooted in a in a very old system so the three of those things getting along pretty dicey and volatile who knows what's going to happen yeah, especially when that third piece keeps growing at a, at a at a ridiculous pace and overshadowing the rest. Like, and yeah. I wonder, like, because there's that theory called the singularity that though that geometric curve is going to hit a point where instead of those big discoveries coming, you know, every month or every couple weeks, it'll be like every minute or like every few seconds. And when it gets to that point, like, are we going to just transcend? Are we going to be able to record ourselves and just maybe literally even become Tron, like actually create a world, record ourselves and go into it and achieve immortality that way? I don't know. That's isn't it wild to think about? Um, or do we on the on the opposite side, if you want to have a more pessimistic view, do we hit some plateau and we just we're stuck? We can't you know. Uh, I, I've read this before where. Because uh, I got a buddy of mine who just graduated from Georgia Tech. Uh, actually, it's, it's a buddy of mine's son, but he and I are, are friends online. We do a lot of gaming together. And he said that we're at a point where you can only see micro uh, improvements in our processing power with our current way of building a computer. If you don't look at the quantum computing, like you can only increase the speed of the chip so much more because at some point, the physics stop you. The real world physics stop you from being able to get anything more out of the current way we're doing things 
And that's where the whole quantum computing comes in as a new way of thinking about, well, how do you, but I think that's amazing to think we're at that point where you really can't squeeze anything more in our current state. We have to figure out a new way to do it. And will we, and will we see a big gap or is it happening concurrently enough that once the one runs out, the other one's ready to take over. It'll be interesting to see. I'm a big fan. Don't get me wrong. Love technology. There is never a time I look back and go, Oh, I wish we could go back to those quaint old days of the rotary phone and sitting on the, you know, having to get an extra long phone cord to stretch it into your room so you could have a private phone call. Yeah. No, I don't have any of those desires whatsoever. I just, it's always intrigued me. Well, where is technology going to eventually take us? And at what point does it stop or does it just transcend to a completely new level that we can't even imagine yet? Yeah. I think the transcendent theory is one that I, I, I think is going to happen. I think when we have enough in one area, it's like a rock in the stream. We find a way to like, we bunch up against it and we're like, oh, that's one limit. And then we find a way around it. I think that's just human nature. I think so. So I think you're right. A a pause, but then there'll be something new. But okay, back to the minute at hand. Dillinger. I like the, the name Dillinger for the villain because that's the name of, I think, the most famous bank robber in American history right there. Uh, so there's an association that gets made. Except that I guess Dillinger was sort of a folk hero, seeing as he was like robbing banks during the Depression. So, Yeah, which, again, if, if you want to see that parallel, if you're working for the guy, he may be a crook, but he's making sure you get paid. <laughs> and you can tell, based on his business interest, he's gaining more clientele. Now, it might be because the MCP is absorbing them behind the scenes, but there's a there, you get the sense that this company has grown significantly because of its advancements in technology. And so there's world governments, there's business and industry. So yeah, the Dillinger thing works because he may be a shady character. Obviously he is because he built a program that behind the scenes is trying to take it all over anyway, but he's still a powerful person. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, working for him would be a good, he would be a good person to work for, but he would be, uh, it'd be shady. And I wonder, yeah, with all the acquisition that he's doing, well, we see later. We see later in later scenes that the MCP is kind of galloping out of control in terms of gobbling up properties. Uh, Dillinger's not a popular name. You know, I thought it was the name of a type of gun, but I think I was getting it confused with Derringer. Yep, Derringer would be the little small. It's actually the gun. Funny, we talk about that. We just finished Blazing Saddles, and that's the gun Harvey Corman's Headley Lamar has uh, tucked away. That's right. That's right. He's got that little noisy cricket, as they say. Right? <laughs> the noisy cricket. What do I do with this? <laughs> I feel like I'm going to break this damn thing. Like in, uh, in Men, Men in Black. Black. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it gets the job done, but it's a, it's a tiny, it's a tiny gun. But Dillinger, yeah, that's a good name for a bad guy because it's got that association. Like I could almost assume that this guy is a, a descendant. So, and then, uh, we see the coolest helicopter ever in the history of cinema, I think. Do you remember this this helicopter here, Sark's helicopter? Oh yeah, because it creates that yeah, it creates that immediate bridge that oh well the the world we live in now is heading toward the Tron world because we just saw everybody's got these same light bars or almost like you said circuit circuit board kind of patterns built into it. Yeah, and I like it because it was it was made in a really low tech way. They made this. There was uh, the company 3M has had made that uh, reflective tape that's still in constant use it's the it reflects almost 100 percent of the light that you see that gets thrown at it it's used a lot in uh safety wear for vests and for bicycle wear for nighttime riding and stuff like that but the tape at the time i think they have some high-end stuff that really really reflects the light and they had some red and they would uh the guy that the designer of the of this prop designer for this helicopter he spent the day just taping off the helicopter with this super reflective tape. And then when they filmed it at night, they had a, another camera in the chopper that was flying beside David Warner's chopper. And they shot this helicopter and they had a red light beside the camera. So they had a red light shooting at the uh, reflective tape and that would light it up. And then when it got reflected back back into the uh, into the camera, it was it would create that solid almost neon glow. So it's a very it's a very low tech thing that looks like a very high tech thing. That is awesome. Like I had no idea. I thought they had run neon, like they really paid to put neon lighting around a, a helicopter. 
and then just blackened out or sort of, you know, in post-production desaturated the, 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 the chopper itself to make the light look, look a little bit more prominent. Your way is easier. <laughs> yeah, well, it's. I think there's a little more effort in terms of putting the tape on, but yeah, the 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 end result is yeah, it uses no power, and it's just a just a practical a practical effect for a very special effect looking result. That's awesome. You know, and the thing is, I think maybe that's another reason why, and we've mentioned in previous uh, minutes that we've been together about those movies of the in this case eighty two. So many we mentioned, but this era because of so many practical effects and the work to design things to look good because they had to be there or real. I think is another reason why so many of those movies stay with us and are still considered some of the best achievements in film at the time, because they were real. They were working to try to figure out how to make something happen. They couldn't just say, well, we'll put it in a computer and do it later. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very true. And you know, I think this generation maybe doesn't feel the difference as much. Maybe I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd be, I'd be, I, I would like to sort of, if I could like warg into a 17 year old's mind and say, okay, now watch this, watch this movie and let me experience you watching this movie. I can kind of give you an anecdotal version. Uh, uh, my older daughters, before they went to college, they um, wanted to spend a summer. They downloaded a list, the 100 scariest movies you should see. Oh, wild. Okay, sure, sure. So they spent the entire summer watching three, four movies a day or a movie here or there just trying to get through it all. And they came up to the movie Alien. They had never seen the original Alien. And we're going through, and I don't think they were paying attention to the year because I think if they had seen that it was 1979, they may have mentally checked out. The set design, the cons- the way they did the movie, the the the, the, the attention to detail Ridley Scott had with even the computers, they never once thought they were watching, quote, an old movie. Like that oh, attention fantastic. to detail and the practical alien effect and the fact that they didn't overshow the alien because this wasn't the director's cut. We watched the one that had less footage that didn't have the scene with Dallas still cocooned and all that stuff. Um, right. They were, by the end of the movie, they were literally knees up up to their chest, arms wrapped around, like poking their eyes out because they were <laughs> they were freaking out about watching it and they got so pulled into this world. So there's an example of where that attention to detail still works to them for them to today. On the flip side, I showed them the movie Willow because I was like, oh, when I was a teenager, this came out. This was like <laughs> George Lucas and Ron Howard directing it. It has, you know, magic and sword and sorcery and, and they fight a two-headed dragon. Halfway through the movie, when they're at the moat scene, my daughter looks at me and she says, why does it move like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, there's an example of how, yeah, if, if you the attention to the practical real world kept them watching an, quote, old movie. But here's Willow that was newer, but because they hadn't perfected CGI, they were still using stop frame animation. They immediately checked yeah. out of the movie because it didn't look real to them. Yeah, so it's uh, it's like both worlds, right? The good stuff survives and the bad stuff looks dated, or the dated stuff looks dated, right? Right. Yeah, like I remember with the stop-motion animation, I saw a discussion with Ray Harryhausen when he was still alive. I saw a, a lecture by him. Like my dad, my dad snuck out when he was a kid to go see King Kong, mm. like the first one, and it was stop-motion animation. And he had nightmares about it because it was so realistic and so freaky. And you watch that now, and it's it's hard to believe that that would give anybody um, a scare because it looks so like you or I could do it with a camera and some effort. <laughs> well, I don't know if I would go that far. There's a lot of effort, obviously, involved. Yeah, I'm an ad- I'm an animator myself, so I know that that stop motion animation takes a lot of time. Oh no, the work of Harry Harryhausen is unbelievable. Yeah, and he was a one-man show. He was just, if you, if you wanted animation done, you went to him. He had a studio in his basement. And he said he had this funny story about he was doing an animation of a hydra for the voyages of Sinbad. So there's nine heads on this snake whipping back and forth uh, up in, up in opposition to each other, snapping at Sinbad. And he got a phone call. And so he was like, you know, moving heads, taking a picture, moving heads, taking a picture, moving heads, taking a picture. Went to get a phone call talked for like five minutes on the phone, came back to his nine-headed hydra and was like, oh no. Okay. Which heads were going forward and which heads were going oh. backward? 
Oh, geez. I don't remember. And so he had to best guess it. And so he showed us a clip of, he's like, and see, if you see right here, you can see two of the heads suddenly pop and change direction in a really unnatural way. And I, I couldn't quite see what he was talking about, but of course to him, it's like burned into his head. Like it's, this made it onto film. This made it out. This was in theaters. Oh, the travesty. Oh, this, <laughs> this horrible mistake, you know, and, but you, you really get that, geez, one phone call and all your rhythm is gone. So, yeah, stop motion animation is, is pretty – the results are incredible for what they could do at the time. I still I still have a nostalgia for it. Uh, we just rewatched Ghostbusters and yeah. the, the scenes uh, – the, the, the stop motion use for the dogs, Zool and for the, Vince Yeah, Corto. for the terror dogs, yeah. Yeah, the two of them, I think they did just the right amount that – Okay, there's a little bit of where that's obviously, uh, you know, superimposed uh, stop frame animation, but then they'd have the practical puppet. And so that worked so well that even today I notice it, but it's not enough to pull me out of the movie. And I'm just like, I love that movie, even with some of the older technology that you can sense in places. It's it's amazing how when you do it right and you blend it with, let's say, puppets or real practical effects to go with it. That's almost always the best. Yeah. And I think to this day, that's still the case. I think, you know, you know, J.J. Abrams talked about it when he did The Force Awakens, that they wanted to go back to more practical effects with CGI enhancement or CGI supplement. And I think that's what you see works. In fact, I'm not sure if you're a big fan. I loved the Netflix Age of Resistance, uh, Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. I was a huge oh, yeah, Dark no Crystal spoilers. fan. We're up to about uh, episode eight right now. So okay, so you're almost done. finished it, but. Yeah, that to me, we're, lo- we're is, loving it. It's the perfect marrying of here's a puppet. It's a practical effect with just enough CGI enhancement, either to the world or to remove the puppeteer or remove the wiring to give you more latitude. And yet you're still watching puppets, but it's re- it's so good. It may be one of the best things I've seen so far this year on Netflix. Yeah, no, I concur. And it worked in Jurassic Park. It worked in uh, Fury Road. Like if you can plan well and marry your cg with your practical then you're off and running to something that's really really beautiful okay and this show also this this uh this helicopter here uh sark's or keep calling him sark dillinger's helicopter yeah, it's very thing. reminiscent <laughs> it's very same thing uh very reminiscent of an old television show called auto man do you remember auto man i remember auto man in fact that was the 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 television show that tried to, I think, capitalize on Tron with his car that would turn at 90 degree angles and it would send, um, uh, what was his name? Um, Arnez Jr. Was, uh, the, Desi the, Arnez Jr. Yeah, Desi Arnez Jr. There was always that comic moment in every episode where he was like face planted up against the side window. He's like, stop, don't do that. That lasted, what, one season? <laughs> Twelve episodes and it was not good. No. But it could be, it did have a little, a little being called Cursor. That would come around, and cursor was what would draw the uh, draw the draw the vehicles. That was kind of like, I guess, their version of bit. The car he would make was a Lamborghini Countach, or Countach, and which is like perfect for that kind of thing. Those lines, you expect to almost see it going around in the in the Tron world as it is. But they use the same they they use that same technique of the reflective tape on the uh, on the vehicles, and that's how they got that effect. Well, it worked. I think they, uh, but with Auto Man, it was more of a bluish white, though, right? Yeah, that's right. It was like a bluish white. Apparently, there was an ep. I haven't seen all the episodes, but there was an episode where they built a, where Cursor built a guitar, <laughs> a guitar for the main character. They must have had a scene in a bar where he was playing, playing, uh, playing <laughs> instruments. This, uh. but that reflective tape was also used for the Kryptonian costumes in the Christopher Reeves movie Superman in the sequences with Marlon Brando when they're wearing the. The white shrouds, the white glowing shrouds um, on Krypton, mm-hmm. you know, that, yeah, that was all made of the of the of that same reflective material. And, and obviously the designer for this film must have under, known about that because that came before this movie. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that was probably a tip that was being shared around. I wonder how long that 3M tape has been around. Because that was like a poncho of it. So, I'm still I'm still yeah. blown away because I can honestly say I am this many years old that I just now have been told that that wasn't neon. Yeah, it works so great. It looks wonderful. And then we get to see David Warner lit from below, looking menacing, but also calm. 
uh, one of the producers, one thing that I've noticed, one of the producers on the film called him the thinnest man he's ever worked with. <laughs> and that's, that's something that I, I look out now and I see it like he never, he doesn't, the, it's hard to tell with movies because the camera adds 10 pounds or whatever, but now I can sort of see it. I can see him being uh, pretty tall and thin. Very and lanky. Sinister and very lanky. And he's such a good bad guy, but he also gets referred to as eccentric. The eccentric actor, David Warner, was brought in to play the part of, of Sark. They had uh, Peter O'Toole in to play the role, the role of uh, Sark. But Peter O'Toole really wanted to play Tron. And they were like, no, no, we had you in mind for the bad guy. And he's like, no, no, I can I can play the good guy. And I've got the physique for it. And there was this moment in the lunchroom where he jumped up on tables and jumped from, like, table to table to prove to the director, see, I'm nimble. I'm oh, athletic, wow. I'm physical, I can do it. But they, uh, but then they brought him to the set and he, I think he wanted to see the tanks and he wanted to see, you know, this world that was in the storyboards. Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, no, we, we didn't, you don't understand, none of that's real. Like that's all going to be done in the computer. And he didn't understand and he still wanted to play a different part. And so eventually that fell apart. But I just imagine how different this movie would have been with Peter O'Toole in the, in the role instead of David Warner. Yeah. I mean, besides who was going to supply all the bourbon on the set? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other, <laughs> whole different challenge. I love David Warner in this. Um, I don't know that I've seen it. And I, I, I would, it'd be a lie to say I've seen everything David Warner's ever done, but, He's it's just sort of that long line of British actors that just know how to play the scene. They know how to fill the screen with whatever role they're playing, with whatever role they're playing. Like I think Cindy Morgan says in one of the behind the scenes that when they were in the prison cell and David Warner says, take these programs to the holding pit and points like Cindy Morgan was didn't have to act. She yeah. was like, oh, oh, my God, like. They, they're gonna get us like she was terrified in that moment and he's wearing the most ridiculous costume in a black set and he's wearing this white leotard with sharpie on it and this weird little samurai helmet as sark and he sells it he sells the heck out of it and you believe it 100 percent. and he's such a good actor i think and we, we've talked about this on our <clears throat> excuse me on our show before that when you have a background from stage where you have to imagine the world being bigger and more real than what you're limited to because you're in a play. You know, when you grow up doing Shakespeare, when you, you grow up doing these classics of Western literature or modern, you're still on stage. And so it's easier, and I've always found this myself, it's easier to take the stage actor and bring him down for film than to take the film actor and try to make him big for stage. And when you have a character like Sark and you say, okay, this is it, you go big, they're so used to being able to say, okay, well, I'll pretend I'm on stage now. And then the director can tell me, okay, bring it down. It's too big. So they, they're they not afraid to go big. They're not afraid to command sure. the audience to be heard in the back row of the theater. You know, you know, I, I, the, the, the direction I've always talked with, with actors when I'm, when I'm filming them and like, okay, I'm, in theater, you have to be loud enough to be heard by everybody, including the back row. So that's why you project, but the camera is like four inches from your face. So just think loud. You don't have to be loud. Yeah, that's a good, oh, that's a good direction. Think loud, don't be loud. That's really good. And I think when you, when you have a role where you need to then be big, if you're comfortable, it just, and you can, and you see, you're right. It blows other actors away that may not have that stage background or presence where you're doing live acting in front of a theater. You're sort of doing take after take and you can be quieter and more, you know, kind of a lot of film actors, when you look, they don't move a whole lot when they're on their talking scenes. You know, it's, they're just sort of sitting there. And when you have somebody just like bellowing, I mean, I'm sure it can just fill the room and just like, whoa, dang, okay. <laughs> yeah, when you notice, when you got someone who knows how to properly project, the volume that the human body can produce is really quite something. Yeah, when you know how to do it properly, and if you're not used to it, you're like, oh gosh, oh, so that's what that's like. I'm okay. I'm I'm listening. So the helicopter comes to a leisurely stop on top of Encom, and Dillinger walks into his expansive expansive ridiculous executive office and uh there's a sculpture in the corner but i'm not sure what kind of sculpture it is it looks like it might be sri lankan or something or mayan i'm not sure hmm. i couldn't place it and as he's walking he's got those awful foley footsteps that i always hated in older older movies that click 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 yeah because he's wearing you know like high heels 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that he's walking on obviously a sidewalk instead of a, a carpet, you know, but it's like footstep sound effect number two or whatever. They, they just use, they overuse that in so many shows back then. And he walks to his beautiful, enormous desk, his slab of an executive desk. I wanted this desk. It's so incredible with the touch screen and all that faked it's all faked there was a giant mirror under the table that everything was like rear projected onto yeah because i'm not sure when the touch keyboard technology came up but i don't think it was now or maybe it was talked about and so that was one of those sort of i guess wow look how advanced the technology ncom has they've created a touch keyboard yeah, and that was sort of another argument for it, for me for it being in a in an alternate universe or something because this was this was like maybe thought of conceptually possibly being prototyped in what was Silicon Valley at the time or something like that, right? Or in the deep in the in the R and D divisions of 3M or IBM, there was maybe some touchscreen stuff going on, but. This was just beautifully represented. I think even now it's, it's an impressive desk that I think a lot of people would love to have. Oh, it's awesome. That dark ebony with the shine and then you realize the computer's built into it. I mean, that as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, I would love to have that. Yeah, for sure. And then he sees his uh, his lieutenant is in there looking out the window. His lieutenant was played by an actor named Stuart Thomas, credited in this movie as Tony Stefano. He's only got three credits on IMDb, Tron, the reincarnation of Peter Proud and the Bristol Boys, but they all talk about his impressive physique, which is hard to tell underneath that suit, but he also plays the lieutenant inside the inside the world of Tron. So I'm going to try to keep an eye out going forward about see if this uh if he has got an impressive physique compared to <laughs> David Warner. Like David Warner's taller, but we'll see. We'll see. Everybody kind of looks the same. Yeah, I remember that was when they were they filmed Tron Legacy here in Vancouver, and a friend of mine, her husband was doing the casting for a lot of the extras and background, and she she said to me, you know, would you like to be in Tron Legacy? And I was like, yes, yeah, you know, like <laughs> uh, with all my heart, dream come true, I would love that. And then so they they got my picture and they got my headshot, and they were like, great, well, everything looks good as long as you're between. Five eight and six one, this should be fine. And I'm six and a half feet tall. I'm six six, and I was like, "Oh, oh, oh no, no, I'm six six. And she was like, "Oh, forget it. It's not. It's not going to happen. Like all the programs have to be of a similar height and build for the inside of the world. Besides the the leads, right?" And I was, "Wow, heartbreak. You know, everybody's Pure always. Heartbreak. Everybody always says tall people have all the power. You want to be as tall. You want to grow to be tall. There's a time you're going, dang it, why can't I be short?" <laughs> Yeah, this one, this one time, it really did not work in my favor. Oh, sorry to hear that. That sucks. That's well. It's one of the things that I've talked to a lot of people um, with my background in film theater and stuff. I say the hardest thing you have to learn as an actor is you may be the most talented person to show up for an audition, but no matter how talented you are, you can't act like you're suddenly six foot four and built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you are looking for a Schwarzenegger type, because it's a visual medium. They're going to go for the person that may suck with delivery, but they got the build they want. So don't take it personally. A lot of times they're looking for a type and whether you have talent comes second. Yeah. Auditioning is such a hard thing. What was, I think it was Churchill that said about democracy. It's the worst form of government that exists except for all the other ones. (laughs) Yeah, That sounds like Churchill. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and that that I think that goes for the audition process too. Like it's the worst way to pick actors except for all the other ways there are. Like right. it's 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 what we have. And if you base that's why as a as an actor you got to be so strong because of rejections like that that have like totally beyond your control. You have to take your satisfaction from the fact that you hit it out of the park in the audition. Mm-hmm. And if they, if they don't pick you so what? Right. If they do pick you, great. And the hardest thing to teach someone, and because it, it was hard for me until I learned it, you can't be emotionally invested because it actually will taint your performance anyway. If you're like, I really want this part, it's going to taint how natural you are. If you just walk in going, it's it's just an audition. I'm going to get it or I'm not. I'm either, I'm either good enough or I'm not. I'm not saying you don't prepare, but don't 
feel like your life is hinging on it because you already don't have the part. Like you walked in, you didn't have the part. It's not like you're losing a job. You don't have it. So just relax, enjoy the process. And if they like you, they like you. If they don't, they don't move to the next one. And it's amazing. I remember saying to, uh, to some groups, I got far more jobs when I stopped caring about whether or not they liked me the first time. I just did the sure. job. You know, you just, you took the pressure away of saying, you know, I'm just going to go in there and do my best. If they like me, I'll get a call back. If not, I move to the next one. Yeah, I remember uh, this really good story. This actor, he was, oh, I forget his name. He's got uh, white hair. He played the senator in the first X-Men movie, Bruce. Oh, I think you're right. The guy that turns into the goo. Yeah, the guy that turns into the the, the water yeah, the water it, powers, it, but his, they're his uncontrolled. His cells all break just, down because the, the ray doesn't hold up over time. The, yeah. Yeah. I know who you're talking about. He's got about. a story. He went into an, uh, an audition. He was super prepared and he was really into it and he was, a lot was riding on it. And the director took one look at him and was like, nope. And he was like, whoa, but I haven't, I haven't done that. And he's like, no. Nope. Well, you can do the audition if you want, but we're not, we're not going to take you. And so the guy did his audition and the director wasn't even looking at him. <laughs> and, and then he was like, okay, great. Thanks. Next. And Bruce left so livid and then he had an audition three years later to play a villain in a western and he went into that audition and it was the same director and he was like this guy this jerk and so he focused all of his anger and his resentment on the director as he was doing this audition for the bad guy and the director didn't even remember him right but the director was like fantastic Wow, you've got so much sinister energy. I love it. You're hired. <laughs> and so he got he got the role as the villain. And then when they came to shoot the show, this director that he hates ended up getting fired and replaced by a friend of his. So he's like, man, this is fantastic. Now I've got this project and my friend is directing. But then his friend took him aside and was like, Look, now that I'm the director, I know you, and I know that you can't pull this off. So we're going to have to find a, a replacement <laughs> for you. So he tells that story to young actors. Like, these are the kinds of ups and downs that are going to happen to you in your career, and you have to roll with them or they will destroy you. <laughs> you know? Wow. That's awesome. That I See, those are things that young actors do need to hear and and, and not take it personally and not think – Oh, it's good. I mean, you might suck, but don't <laughs> don't immediately jump there. Just keep you know being true and honest, but don't let it get you down because everyone that was in that same room, only one of those people is getting the the same part, right? So just go to the next one. Don't give up. Like that episode of uh, The Simpsons. Congratulations, Bart. You're the next radioactive boy. That's what I'd be saying to you if you were two inches taller. <laughs> next, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, <laughs> like oh my god, it's that harsh. It is. All right. Okay. So back. So he lands on top of the Encom building, uh, the Encom building. And in the novel, it's got a great description. The Encom building says, ahead in the heart of the city rose the monolithic Encom building. Its highest floor is lit by the last rays of the sun. Its lower windows already defining new constellations where work was still in progress. Ooh. Which I like that idea. Like it's so tall. That the bottom's in darkness, but the sun is still setting for the top floors. That's awesome. And the, the dotted lights of the people still working at any hour of the day creates almost like a star pattern. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And the novel mentions that um, the only thing that brings Dillinger passion is the Encom logo. <laughs> <laughs> he sees anything with the logo on it as his. And, uh, and that makes him feel... That makes him feel like he's actually done something or he has some joy in his life, which I thought was a nice little note to add to his character. Because when the MCP takes over, it's like, oh, now I have nothing. Yeah, we're going to – of course, it's not in my minute here, but I, it's going to be fun to watch the conversation progress once the MCP and Dillinger start having the conversation. Because I do sense, much like you brought up uh, in, in one of the episodes, I think it was last minute, about um, – Frankenstein's monster, once you've unleashed it and it wants to do what it wants, then you're kind of like, wait, what? You get the same yeah. sense that that he realizes, uh-oh, it's gotten me to where I love the power I have. Now 
it's going beyond me, and I, it, it may have now realized it no longer needs me, and there's that sense of concern coming up. I love this movie. God, I love this movie. It's so good. It's so good. All right, well, that, uh, that takes us to the end of this minute, I think. Um, where can people find you if they want to hear more of your stuff? What's going on? Oh, sure. I uh, would love for folks to give us a, give us a listen. Uh, me and my co-host, Walt Murray, we do the Wilder ride. Instead of doing a franchise, we looked at an actor, Gene Wilder, and said, well, let's analyze some of our favorite Gene Wilder films. And so we're doing the body of work of Gene Wilder. We did Young Frankenstein. We've done Blazing Saddles. We're getting ready in early 2020 to do Silver Streak. So looking for a lot of fun, a lot of guests. Same thing like this podcast. We break the movie down one minute of the movie at a time. And uh, if you want to find out more, you can go to thewilderride.com. From there, it's got links to everything, our social media, where you can find us. We actually have an Alexa flash briefing where we do a weekly sort of news flash for about a six or seven minute fun little thing related to podcasts and news and stuff that we think is cool. Uh, Movies, entertainment. Uh, If you're an Alexa user, it's a skill you can get for free. Uh, We've got a Public store if you want to get a mug or a a sticker or a T-shirt or whatever. That's got Gene Wilder. We've got some designs. We're always adding new things there. So it's very simple. The Wilder Ride. Everywhere you search, whether it's a social media or, or whether it's a store or whether it's podcast, that's our name, and you can find us there. Right on. And if you want to get in touch with us here at Tronologically Speaking, you can check out more at tronologicallyspeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at Tronologically Speaking. Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking, the Tron minute-by-minute minute listeners page. Uh, the intro and the outro music were created by Roman Forster over at Pond 5. Go to them for some royalty-free music you can purchase. And uh, special thanks, as always, to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. If you want to check out more of these amazing podcasts, go on over to moviesbyminute.com and see if your favorite movie is there. And uh, if it is, feel free to listen to it and maybe do a version yourself. And if it isn't, then... Get in there and start one for yourself and continue the appreciation and love for a movie that you have a deep passion for. It's a wonderfully inclusive and encouraging community. Um, I highly recommend that you do that. So what do you think? You want to do a little uh, end of line on three? Let's try it again. (laughs) Okay, we'll try it again. All right, last time. It's been great having you. Thank you so much for doing this. No, seriously, thanks for inviting me. And uh, if if anything happens along the way and you need another guest for a minute or two here or there, if my schedule is available... Look me up. As you can tell, I love this movie. Wonderful. Fantastic. I'll do that. Okay. Odd three. One, two, three. End End of of line. line.